This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast, where we analyze, discuss, and find all of the history, mythology, and philosophy that bubbles up into our popular storytelling. It is summer 2019. Welcome to the heat wave, everybody. At least if you're in Philadelphia right now, you're feeling the heat wave. And I'll tell you what, I'm personally feeling the heat because I am so excited to talk about our subject matter. This is a podcast idea that had been floating around Laurel and I's brains for a long time, and we finally found a way to talk about monsters. Yeah. Monster pod. Ah, This is our podcast where we're going to discuss monsters, and we are in particular excited for inspired by the Netflix TV show Stranger Things. So spoiler wall for season one and two of Stranger Things is now up. We will be talking about Stranger Things through the lens of understanding monsters, asking the fundamental question, why monsters? Yes, I love it. Uh, We're excited that in a couple of weeks, Stranger Things is coming back for season three, and it's teasing the return of certain monstrous threats as well as new and exciting and different ones. Uh, So we want to look back at seasons one and two to try and understand the monsters within it, what they represent, and the long lineage of monsters within uh, the history of cinema, within mythology, and really understand why, as long as we have told stories, we have told stories about monsters. What do they represent? What do they mean to us? Why do we keep coming back to them, even though they frighten us so? So yeah, I'm very excited to be here as well and to talk about stranger things, to talk about monsters and what they mean. Yeah. And I mean, there was a Godzilla movie that just came out. Yeah. Godzilla King of the Monsters just came out. There will be the next installment of the Stephen King It's movie coming out. So monsters are in. Let us roll up our sleeves. Let us peel under the hood. Let us open up the onion. Whatever metaphor I'm getting wrong. We're here to talk about it tonight. Before we begin and dive too heavy, 
a lot of amazing Midnight Myth uh, news. I know I've teased that a Game of Thrones blog is coming. I haven't forgotten about it. It's turned out to be a much bigger project than I anticipated. It's a massive undertaking. I am about a quarter of the way through my first rewrite, um, but it will be coming, and I'm really excited to share it with everybody. Wheel of Ka is back. Yeah. For you Dark Tower aficionados, there's going to be the next episode of the Wheel of Ka very, very soon. Um, We're a little bit late, but not too late. So we, we wanted to get it earlier, but life is busy. Yeah, and it's reading, so you got to take your time with that. And it's a mammoth book series. It is. Uh, what else? We got so much other news going on. Well, new we're merch. running a sale on the merch store, and we have some new merch. We have a new design that we have T-shirts, tank tops, mugs, and stickers for. It's the Midnight Myth Rune T-shirt, which we're a big fan of and really excited about. And the sale right now is running through July 6th, so not too much longer. If you want to get 15% off the merch item of your choice, head to our merch store, which you can find on our website, www.midnightmyth.com, or by going to the custom bit.ly, bit.ly slash shop myth, and that'll take you directly to uh, our store Type in Solstice at checkout and you'll get 15% off merch, whatever you want. And always hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, yep. Instagram, Facebook, Midnight Myth Podcast, uh, www.midnightmyth.com for the blogs, other additional content. And to our amazing, to our fantastic, to our beloved Patreon subscribers, thank you. You'll be getting a bonus episode this month or maybe right at the start of July because we're a little behind. Yeah, in the next couple of days, you'll be getting your your next um, Patreon boomerangerang. And if you're not a Patreon member yet, I'd recommend getting in on it now. If you pledge at the $5 a month or higher level, you get a monthly boomerangerang, which if you have been around for a little while, you know those are extra fun. They're Derek and me going at it with a pop culture debate and they get pretty crazy, but uh, it's a lot of fun, and we we really enjoy doing it. And uh, if you want to get in on that, make sure you hit up our Patreon. Yeah. Uh, last thing before we dive in, a good segue. We did a Twitter poll on who our favorite monster or who your favorite monster was. We got a lot of votes, so thank you very much. Yeah. I voted for the Xenomorph from, from the Alien. Alien franchise, right? Um, which is one of my favorite sci-fi franchises that we've been kicking around wanting to do some podcasting about for a yeah, long time. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think, uh, actually, who won? I don't remember. Yeah, so it ended up being a, f- a complete tie between Godzilla and King Kong, who both got 30% of the vote. So two iconic, classic movie monsters uh, tied for the top spot. And then Xenomorph came in with 26% of the vote, and then 14% of the vote went to Other. And I actually have some of the responses up uh, just so we can see what people were saying about their favorite classic movie monsters. Uh, at Bingeables Pod, the Bingeables podcast. So Chin Lin and Isaac asked if we would consider Frankenstein or Dracula. And we were like, of course, they're like classic movie monsters, both of which I think we've talked about on this podcast a, a few times. But they definitely speak to um, these sort of internalized fears or this like I've created a monster philosophy, especially with Frankenstein. So I loved that suggestion. Uh, at books underscore Pandora, Pandora's books said, Frankenstein, Frankie had soul. And I love that response so much. Frankie did have soul. Then uh, at Suleiman Janahai, Suleiman said King Kong, because of the myths, legends, and overall mystery surrounding Skull Island, 
which I absolutely agree with. I love how uh, expansive that mythology is and how um, how much of colonialism and imperialism is tied in with the King Kong myths. And I would love to talk about King Kong in depth at some point on the podcast. And then at Mr. Underscore Fantasy 92, Mr. Fantasy said, Xenomorph, as humans, we expect aliens to hold intelligent life and advanced civilization. The Alien series showed us this isn't always the case and that in space, no one can hear you scream, which I thought was a fantastic response. And especially coming off of two weeks of talking about Bill and Ted and science fiction, and especially optimistic science fiction, that's an interesting reversal there to talk about this uh, sci-fi horror that was spawned by Alien that segues really nicely, I think, into uh, Stranger Things as well. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you, everybody, for your responses, for your votes. Yeah, uh, we loved you. hearing from you. Thank you for everyone on Twitter. Uh, the Twitter community for the Midnight Myth has been a ton of fun watching that grow. So really appreciate everyone who took time out of their day to tap one thing on their screen to vote first. <laughs> <laughs> but if you give us a reply, well done. you're definitely awesome. Anyway, I I just, I kid. Let's uh, let's roll up our sleeves here. Yeah. Let's get to work. I say sleeves. It's so hot in Philadelphia. We're in a tank top. We're wearing tank tops, yeah. Yeah. But um, let's talk all things Stranger Things and Monsters. So I kind of have a introductory thesis about Stranger Things, about the show, um, that I sort of filter, and I want to filter this episode through. Okay. Um, my introductory thesis idea is that Stranger Things as a show, in my not so humble opinion works best and is the most entertaining when it encourages us, the audience to see the universe through the eyes of the children, through the eyes of in particular, the main adventure party that we see. So dusty will, um, Lucas, Lucas, Mike, Mike, that, that whole group. Um, and then Max in season two and that, and L and L can't forget uh, 11 and that, well, 11, no, I won't include 11 in this, actually. Specifically, I think 11 okay, stands great. apart from this. Great. But in particular, how that core group, those young boys, how they see the world, how we get to see it, how and how that their worldview, a world full of magic and monsters, is confirmed, where there are adventuring parties that need to go out and they need to defeat and overcome these monsters in order for them to return home in peace. Right. And that is, I think, the secret sauce that they see the world through the lens of a Dungeons and Dragons young 80s boy world. And that world is ultimately proven to be the correct way to, to, to view the world. So the other characters, whether that's Joyce or Hopper, have to see the, the world through their lens in order for them to overcome the the obstacle, which is ultimately to defeat the monster that comes from the realm of shadows. Yeah. The upside down, the upside down, if you will. So I think that's the secret sauce that I personally really get into when the show kind of diverges out of that. I don't get as into it when it's not really about, Hey, this is this world where science and magic are meeting somewhere in the middle. And it takes the like, wide-eyed enthusiasm and belief and optimism of a child in order for the adults who are supposed to be protecting to be protecting the kids in order for them to overcome this evil. Yeah, I mostly agree with you on that. Uh we have done a Stranger Things podcast before and we talked about the effect of nostalgia in storytelling 
Uh, and we dug really deeply into the science of nostalgia on that episode. Um, but I think that there is something really powerful about, especially us who were uh, 70s, 80s, 90s kids, watching this show and seeing their world through the eyes of of kids that age. Anybody from any generation can uh, earnestly engage with a show that uh, really honestly portrays what it's like to be a kid in, in a harsh and cruel world. Uh, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right about that because it goes full throttle into like, this is how kids would interpret this universe. And I want to be with them on this adventure. I want to feel like a kid again. Yeah. And in season one, there are two layers of monsters that we can understand. Um, there is first the Demigorgon, who is a monster in the strictest, most traditional sense. It's an animal, yeah. It's essentially a thoughtless, heartless beast that does nothing but want to destroy. It's ugly, it's vicious, and it just wants to destroy life just to destroy life. And then there's Papa, Dr. Brenner, who is Eleven's adopted father, for lack of a better term, who runs Hawkins' lab, who is responsible for trying to experiment and weaponize psionic abilities in children as a way to do espionage against Russians, which opens up this portal to this other dimension, which allows the monster to come through. Yeah. So we are seeing two different sides of the monster in season one. In season two, they kind of advance this world by making the laboratory less monstrous, by making them a little more on the side of the good guys. They have this portal to the other world. They're trying to understand it. They're trying to contain it, but they're still fundamentally, they're okay with being spies and being espionages. They're not really good guys, but they're certainly not the monster of Dr. Brennan. They can plead a little bit of ignorance. They are fundamentally unmonstrous in season two. Yeah. Versus being monstrous like in that. season one. So it advances them that, hey, that this institution learned from its mistakes, still does a lot of the shady fucked up things, but there's a delicate balance between Hopper and them and the uh, the main doctor in season two. And they are they are kind of they're kind of trying to do the right thing, realizing that they had made mistakes and they're trying to slightly atone for their monstrous behavior in right. season one. Yeah. Um, for the purposes of this pod, let's first talk about the actual what we think of the classical definition of the monster. So first we have the Demogorgon. Then we have the demo dogs, and then we have the shadow monster slash mind flare. Yeah. And those are sort of like the three more traditional monsters. So I think it, it it's worth discussing how do we define monster? Where does the definition of monster come from? And then ultimately, how can that shape these monstrous characters and what tradition they're living in? Great. So let's dig a little backwards here. So the word monster has been around for some time. As a matter of fact, there are two roots in ancient Latin to the word monster that we have. The first is monre, which essentially means to warn or warning. And then there's monstrum, which means a portent. If you're not familiar with the word portent, it's a, it is a omen or a portent or a vision of things to come. So one would go to an oracle in the ancient world and they would give them a portent, which is to understand somehow, some way, a symbol that could tell us what the future would or would not hold. 
in particular a portent, one of the major portents, pardon me, in ancient Roman world and a lot of ancient pagan cultures was the birth of a deformed animal. So like two-headed snake. Absolutely. Bad omen. That would be a bad omen. Any kind of animal born with a deformity that you had come across, that you would see, would be considered a portent of bad luck. It'd be an ill omen. And we're starting to see the first shapes of what we think of as monstrous. Because one of the characteristics of a monster is typically physically repulsive or ugliness. Right. And this is rooted in the Latin tradition of seeing something that it was a monstrum, which is a portent and a bad one, and associating it with a deformed, misshapen, or ugly animal. As time progressed, um, then the, the word monster came to mean some different things, too. Okay. So in the 16th century, the word monster and monstrous really, in English, just referred to something of great and enormous size. That's where it for, first got linked with really big things, or monsters, or monstrous. It wasn't really until the more modern eras where the word monster became to be associated with a thing or a creature that fundamentally wants to destroy human life and usually simply to destroy it. There's not a lot of depth behind many monsters. There's not a big motivation. Their desire is to hurt and destroy humans, to hurt and destroy humans. This manifested in the monster genre or the monster movie, which was first coined in 1958, the first time anyone used that to define an entire genre of movies where there is some sort of a monster who is typically low to no intelligence doing that is hideous in appearance, typically incredibly large and just out there to kill, maim and destroy people. Does that sound like any of the monsters from Stranger Things? It sure does. Yeah. It's certainly the demo gorgon. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So, yeah. So when I think of monsters, I think grotesque, I think abnormal, uh, misshapen or somehow uh, wrong, right? And these these things throughout history and throughout the course of storytelling have have tended to threaten social conventions. So we have done other podcasts on specific types of monsters, right? Like dragons and zombies and vampires. And those have very specific uh, subversive elements to them. Like it's wrong to see a body rise from the dead and come after your brains. That is a threat to our uh, understanding of the the way the universe works. So that is monstrous. Um, But I also came across a definition from Seneca from ancient Rome Uh, where he defined a monster philosophically as a, quote, visual and horrific revelation of the truth, end quote. So I think that ties in interestingly with what you were saying about uh, monstrum, meaning a a portent or a warning, uh, that it had to do with the revelation of something. It had to do with revealing a truth um, that was uh, horrifying to the, the human condition. It was an affront or it was a threat um, oh, that's good. So yeah. we can link that directly to season one because the discovery of and fight against the demo Gorgon reveals the truth that Hawkins Laboratory was doing illegal and immoral experiments on children. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. It escapes as the same at the same time that Eleven escapes. And so there is a, a link between them and a link between the horrible tortures that were done to Eleven and this monster being set loose and this truth being set loose. I tend to think that our most potent and our most enduring monsters uh, are those that express some kind of deeply held intangible fear within us, right? So there is something that we can't really describe, we can't really understand, and so we make a monster out of it. Uh, I think a really good example of this uh, is the werewolf. Uh, so it's a human who shapeshifts into a lupine monster who loses control of himself when the moon is full. Uh, now, the moon has been linked uh, in, in folklore with sanity and insanity, hence the term lunacy. So this fear of losing control over one's mind or losing uh, one's uh, decorum and submitting to one's base, baser instincts, one's animal instincts, is a core fear that we can't really articulate, so we create the werewolf. Uh, I think a lot of monsters help to externalize and understand and work through those internal fears that we can't really, de really deal with. Yeah, I think you're touching on the fundamental question of why monsters. So I think we've defined where the term came from, how it's been used, how it's sort of changed a little bit over time and in different eras and how it's linked to language. But the fundamental question, why monsters? Why does every culture in terms of its myth, in terms of its storytelling, in terms of its drama, its tragedy, its comedy, why do they all usually have some type of a monster or monster-inspired aspect to it, to it? Why is that so universal? And I do think it is about the externalization of inner anxieties. So there's been a lot of study on the psychology of monsters. Primarily, monsters develop in our imagination when we are children. Right. That's when we first start to imagine them. That's when we actually believe they're there. That's when the bump in the night could potentially be a ghoul or a fiend. And in many ways, there and there's a lot of different theories as to why. So this is by no means monolithic or absolute, but we have to go back to our friend of the podcast, Sigmund Freud. Oh my God. When are we going to get an interview with, with this friend of our podcast? Yeah. I, you know what? <laughs> I've been hitting him up. Hitting, I've been hitting him up on Twitter and he's not responding. He's just no, not even responding to my DMS. The idea is that as we grow and we get into our earlier stages of childhood development, we can't cope with the way that an adult can with the anxieties and the pressures and the fears, in particular when we are confronting for the first time that the universe is most likely cold and indifferent. And so how do we deal with this vast indifference? How do we deal with the trauma of the everyday and the anxieties that come accustomed to being a person alive. When you're a child, you create it in and you fill that space with your imagination in the monster. And those, those fears are very basic and primal. The bump in the night could be something that is trying to hurt you. What is that thing that's trying to hurt you? It's easier for you to understand. You don't want to think of it as a burglar. It can't be that the house is burning down. It can't be that, you know, maybe one of your parents is abusive. No, it's a beast or a fiend or a boogeyman who's trying to get you. And that's what you imagine. And that's what you are trying to conquer. It's dealing with that, that anxiety. And as we grow older, 
And as we become, you know, adults, we are still confronted with the evidence all around us all the time that the universe could very well and most likely, most probably is completely indifferent to our existence and that our existence really may not have any impact on the universe in any larger sense. And as we deal with that and as we cope with that, a way that we can externalize those fears is through the monster narrative. Sometimes this can be individualized and sometimes this can be collective. One of the great examples that we discussed prior to sitting down here is Godzilla. Godzilla representing a culture, Japan, in defeat, having lost a war, and also dealing with literal nuclear fallout when two cities were wiped off the face of the planet in an instant. One of the ways that they collectively coped with the fact that they lost a war and suffered a nuclear attack was in the Godzilla monster narrative. So it manifests this collective and cultural anxiety and takes the nuclear bomb, which is itself cold, cruel, indifferent, and it puts it into a gigantic reptile who can wipe out cities in an instant. Yes, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because Godzilla has, of course, historically been associated with the bomb, with the atomic bomb, and with, you know, knowing that it came out in 1954, it was just a couple of years after the horrors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the shared trauma of the Japanese people. Uh, this was a film that they could all uh, read a deep significance into and that was definitely baked into uh, the the character himself, Godzilla is awoken by a nuclear test uh, that that wakes him up from underneath the ocean, and then he is basically a bomb made manifest. Uh, the military cannot control him. He's he's made by us. We are responsible for him, and yet we cannot control him. So, in the same way that uh, the werewolf may uh, you know represent our internal fears about losing control over our our animal instincts. Godzilla and the kaiju or the Japanese giant monster genre comes to represent this folly of mankind, the things that we create and we cannot control and quickly, quickly uh, fly out of our grasp. Totally. And I think that is a really good way to read season one of the Demogorgon because we are dealing with the world where one of the biggest anxieties is the Cold War is the fact that you have two nations using every way that they can get a, an advantage over each other without going to nuclear war. And what do we have? We have a creature who lives in the shadows. We have a creature who kidnaps children. We have a, t- a creature with an, a, an appetite for human flesh that is insatiable. We have a creature that's being covered up by a spy evil organization that lives in Indiana of all fucking places. Right. The Midwest. Yep. Yeah. Out out there in the middle of cornfields, there is this evil government experimental organization just trying to get a little bit of information. And what do they do? Oh, they rip psionic ability to children from their mothers, uh, torture their mothers with, you know, electric convulsion shock therapy until their brains are scrambled tattoo a number on the kid's arm and then do all sorts of terrible experiments that open up a portal to the fucking, you know, other dimension. The veil of shadows. Yeah. In which outsprings the manifestation, all of the, the manifestation of their anxieties, 
they are trying to fight the monster of communism and in doing so are doing monstrous things, which then summons this demon from another realm who is now the like literal embodiment of all everything that they fear. Something you can't see, something you can't fight, something that you can't combat and something that will not stop until it consumes the entire planet. Yeah, if there's one thing you can say about the Demogorgon, and to a certain extent all of the monsters in Stranger Things, including the Demodogs and the Mind Flayer, uh, is that they are insidious. They are, uh, they're hard to detect, they're hard to see coming, and yet they will consume you. Um, And I, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time with the inspiration for the Demogorgon, to try and understand um, how how Stranger Things is interpreting the like long history and the long arc of monsters throughout. Fuck yeah, let's do it. So Derek, when you first saw episode one of season one of Stranger Things, what is the first thing that happened on the show? They played Dungeons and Dragons. They played Dungeons and Dragons. The first thing that we see is the party, Dustin, Mike, Will, and Lucas in Mike Wheeler's basement, playing a D&D adventure. And they are going up against what they suspect may be the Demogorgon. And we're so dead if it's the Demogorgon. And uh, what most D&D players will know is that the Demogorgon is, in fact, a monster from Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, He first appears in the game Eldritch Wizardry from 1976 as a reptilian demon prince And then he shows up in subsequent monster manuals after that. So you can always find him in the monster manual. Uh, He has two heads and his two heads have individual minds and individual personas. And they're often at odds, if not at war with each other. They want to destroy each other or unify with each other. Uh, They were created by Gary Gygax and Brian Bloom, who were pulling from a mythological monster who looks very different from the Eldritch Wizardry Dungeons and Dragons monster and very different from the monster from Stranger Things. But I think there are some things that we can learn about the Stranger Things universe from the mythological Demogorgon. The first time we see the word Demogorgon, it's in the work of the 4th century scholar, forgive me, Lactantius Placidus. Uh, and the yeah, good old Lactantius Placidus. Placidus, <laughs> and the concept of the creature uh, is that he's a demon or a pagan god who's associated with the underworld. But he sort of captures the medieval imagination, and he'll start to show up as this prince of hell or this uh, ineffable demon god in great works like uh, the works of Boccaccio and his uh, genealogies of the gods. And then in the Renaissance and Dr. Faustus and in Paradise Lost as well, or in um, Spencer's The Fairy Queen. He even becomes a character in Percy Shelley's play Prometheus Unbound, which is a lyric um, play that he wrote in the 19th century where the Demogorgon becomes a little bit of an antihero. He's sort of a liberator uh, who is fighting against the unjust uh, ruler gods. And so there's sort of a a weird line that he straddles between um, righteousness and uh, rebellion that I think sort of feels Godzilla-esque as well because there is something a little bit sympathetic about Godzilla, whether you're Japanese or American or whatever. You can feel for what was done to the creature and feel for uh, what he has become. I think that that is part of the Demogorgon as well. But the like major quality of this mythological creature is that he is ineffable. 
is shadowy. He's formless. He's sexless or hermaphroditic. He is primordial. He's primal. And many people think that the term demogorgon was actually a misread and a mistranslation from Plato's idea of the demiurge, which uh, really translates to craftsman or creator. It was Plato supposing that there was one great creator deity who was primordial and, and created the entire universe. So there is a line, I think, that the Demogorgon walks uh, in every iteration of him throughout uh, medieval and Renaissance literature, where he is destroyer and creator, where he is rebel and he is demon, where he is God and he is evil. He is all of these things. And how does that come together into this you know, crazy, mindless beast in Stranger yeah. Things and in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I'm, go on. Yeah, yeah, so there's, I think, a, a great duality to him, and and Stranger Things certainly, um, we we just have the kids ascribing a D&D &D character to a real beast monster that they find in the Upside Down, so it's not literally the Demogorgon, right. but there's a reason why they equate those two things. It can walk two worlds, it can... Um, it can be multiple things. Well, and there is a sense of duality to the, the Demogorgon in season one. So there is both the Demogorgon and L yeah. who are both two different sides of a certain coin. It is L who opens up the plane of existence through her psychotic, her psionic abilities, pardon me. And through that plane being opened, it is her who first sees the Demogorgon feasting on flesh and that lets the Demogorgon into our world. And the Demogorgon then has the ability to pass through both pretty much at ease without any yeah. problem. So there is the two-sidedness that L and the Demogorgon are one. There's the one of the best scenes in season one is where Lucas says, we're looking for the monster. It's L. Yeah. He even calls her a monster. And I think it's one episode later that she... Uh, has a reckoning with herself. She realizes how dangerous she is and that she hurt Lucas. And she says to Mike, it's me. I'm the monster. I opened the gate. I'm the monster. And Mike has to be there to be like, no, you saved us. You're a good person. But she has internalized and she's begun to blame herself for the wreckage that uh, the Demogorgon has wrought on the world. So I think that duality between Elle and the monster, I think speaks to those two warring heads or those two types of identities, the savior and the right. destroyer. And ultimately it is L who must sacrifice and martyr herself in season yeah. one to end up vanquishing the Demogorgon. Yeah. And then even in season two, it is L once again has to confront the rift that she opened between these two planes of existence. It's her at the conclusion of season two that has to close the portal and then seal the mind flare back into the upside down. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's not really clear what the Upside Down is in a tangible story narrative. We don't know if it is another dimension that has always existed, that exists simultaneously and next to ours. We don't know if this was a dimension that was created out of El's psionic abilities, but we do know that it was El who opened up the gateway. But El didn't do it uncoerced. El did that at the behest of Hawkins' lab. She did it under the direction of weaponizing children for a government organization. And after years of torture, of literal torture. Psychological been... and physical torture. Yeah. yeah. 
And she did so under the behest of Dr. Oh God, I'm blanking. Brenner. Dr. Brenner. Papa. And Dr. Brenner is the public face to the veil of shadow Demogorgon. So there's a duality between the two of them that they both represent two different sides. When you are in control of a bureaucracy that is literally torturing and hurting and damaging children, you are a monster. Yeah. You are legitimately doing something monstrous. And because of that in Stranger Things, the consequence of doing this terrible thing to innocent humans is that it opens up the gateway and it allows this Demogorgon to come in who ultimately then kills Dr. Brenner. Right. Um, And we just need to, as Americans, just kind of pause and meditate on evil complex, or at least if not evil, because I don't think Dr. Brenner's intention is to be evil. I think he genuinely believes fighting communism is right. But when you're in control of a bureaucracy that's gotten so big and so complex, its mission creep has gotten so out of whack that you're torturing children. You really have to look at yourself in the mirror and you are becoming a monster, even if you want to fight them. And that has several parallels to what's currently happening in summer 2019. Oh my God. Right. Where there, we have pictures every day of children with the flu or without medicine uh, happening at our Southern border all because of a complex and cruel bureaucracy that's decided to dehumanize and weaponize them. I mean, come on. You're monsters. You're fucking monsters. <laughs> like you're doing this to fucking children. Yeah. Uh, you're fucking summoning a demogorgon into our fucking world, you assholes. Oh my god, we are in the upside down. We are. We legitimately are. Um but yeah, so that there are so many different layers the monster, though it may be a externalized childish anxiety that as we grow, it does grow with us. And it might be about latent subconscious desires or desires or fears, rather, more likely latent subconscious fears. And um, certainly we can see that there's a chance that the universe is inherently monstrous because it may be indifferent to our existence and not care. And that may mean our lives are meaningless. But as we start to, to really understand the purpose of the monster in a very good show, like stranger things, we start to see that the monster can also be that mirror reflection. It can be the portent. It is warning us of what the dangers of corrupt power can be and the unintended consequences of hurting and demonizing little, little kids. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I want to talk a little bit about season two as well and how uh, it kind of mirrors the events of season one as we are introduced to a new monstrous figure. Let's do it. um, In the mind flare or the shadow monster, as it is called. At the end of season one, Hopper and Joyce successfully extract Will from the upside down. They get the kid back and he seems fine, even though there is a quite disastrous portent at the end of, uh, of the series when he coughs up a slug. Uh, we enter season two and Will has been living normally for a year, but he starts having visions of his time in the upside down. He starts having flashbacks or what become known as now memories. They're like memories that he is experiencing in the moment that he's always known, but are playing in front of him right now. 
Um, and he is admitted to a facility. He goes to uh, uh, frequent checkups. And the doctors say what we probably all would assume in this situation, which is even though we're still learning about this condition, he is dealing with severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and he is coming up on the anniversary of the traumatic event, which is when he was uh, taken away and made to live in an, a hostile, a physically toxic environment uh, and dealt with that for multiple days or weeks. And as he approaches this anniversary, he starts to see the shadow monster, which appears like a spider-like storm. Uh, it, he is accompanied by red skies and thunder and lightning, and he has these sort of tentacle uh, limbs that are almost made of smoke. Uh, interestingly, in my research about the Demogorgon throughout mythology, some descriptions of him referred to him as smoky or shadowy or uh, appearing in a similar way to the shadow monster of season two. So I think there are some uh, echoes of the ineffability of the, the mythological Demogorgon on the shadow monster Mind Flayer. Um, but the Mind Flayer is the name that gets ascribed to the shadow monster by the boys as they're looking through their monster manual. And Mind Flayer is also a monster from Dungeons and Dragons created by Gary Gygax. He also appeared uh, first in Eldritch Wizardry in 1976. And these are humanoid creatures with tentacles on their face that use those tentacles to penetrate their prey's brains and uh, feed on the brains. They're also known as illithids, and they are at least indirectly uh, inspired by the work of H.P. Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, they also have psionic and telepathic abilities, so they, uh, they can read minds and they can influence people sort of in the same way that Eleven does, and the shadow monster, of course, creates uh, a kind of hive mind with the other creatures of the Upside Down and is able to influence them. Uh, one thing that I found out about Mind Flayers and Illithids in the Dungeons & Dragons universe is that they implant their offspring inside of their hosts, and the offspring grows inside of the hosts, consumes their brain, and takes over their body, and becomes uh, the host, essentially, like takes over them entirely so that the only thing left is the illithid or the mind flare itself. It's pretty gross, uh, but they've got their whole own distinct race and culture and uh, canon of legends, which is really fascinating, and I highly recommend looking into it. You know, that's interesting because the way the mind flare interacts with the character Will is that in one of his visions which we they, the, the boys describe as true sight, his ability to yeah. see into the realm of the shadows, is that it infiltrates his body. Yeah. And it in, once it infiltrates his body, it is now somewhat living in both realms kind of simultaneously. And we get the idea that this is the sort of consciousness behind the realm of shadows that's really trying to expand and take over this new world. Yeah. And very much it implants itself into will, which is to me, I think the central theme that we see in season two in particular for the characters, uh, will and Mike, and that they are both dealing with the trauma of season one and they're dealing with it in different ways. So we could in part read some of the events that will goes through as symbolic of the fact that he got separated from his parents 
he was lost in the woods or in the, you know, other realm and um, was had to fend for himself for the first time ever. Will's character was confronted head on with the cold and indifferentness of the universe. And based upon that, now that he is back within the circle of protection, the mother's love, the caring, good group of friends, the great mentors and teachers that he has, he still can't cope with this idea that the universe is a really cold and ruthless and relentless place. And what happens? He feels possessed by this actual evil. And with Mike is dealing with the trauma of having lost a friend at such a young age. And to Mike, L might be dead, might be alive. He's not able to get the closure that he desperately needs to know that L has either survived the battle with the Demogorgon or perished. Because he can't cope with that, he's disconnected from his friends. He's disconnected from uh, his family. He's not as interested in school. The character Max, he sees as a threat you know, and is just an absolute gatekeepering asshole to her the entire right, time. Yeah. And so I think both of these characters are very much dealing with the trauma that happens in the first season. And we're seeing so many of the events kind of mirror and represent this trauma. Yeah. And, and all of the kids in the party went through a traumatic event. They all had to fight for their lives in the face of a literal monster. Uh, but clearly, uh, Will was stuck in another realm and didn't have air that he could breathe and didn't have food and was being uh, hunted. hunted. Uh, and and Mike had the very personal connection severed. And so both of them have clearly internalized this more than Dustin or Lucas. But there is something that they all have to be there to work through together, like a true Dungeons and Dragons party. Uh, I love in uh, in season two, uh, even though Mike is like viciously shutting Max out, he tells us exactly who everyone in the party is. He says that Will is the cleric, uh, Mike is the paladin, Dustin is the bard, Lucas is the ranger, and L is the mage. And truly, they have all uh, found uh, a group of people who who fill in the needs that young people have as they're growing up. Like you need to have someone who is tapped into. Uh, a greater sense of compassion, a cleric in will. Uh, you need to have someone who is fierce and fearless and will use uh, you know, a wrist rocket to try to take out a monster uh, in Lucas, the ranger. And you need to have Dustin, the bard, who will think creatively and who will be struck by inspiration at the right uh, perfect moment. And then you need L who can just shoot Gas off magic. magic. Yeah, yeah. It's literally magical. Yeah. So there is something that, uh, that every single one of them is able to bring to the party in order to make each other better and lift each other up. And what I think is, um, is interesting is that stranger things and the, the people who, uh, who create the show and who are working on the marketing and the promotion for it have acknowledged to a certain extent that this is a show about young people dealing with trauma um, obviously in the show we get Will being examined for post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, Elle in season one is dealing very much with the same. She is leaving a, a horribly abusive situation and coming into a childhood for the first time. But in preparation for season three to come out, Wizards of the Coast released an expansion Dungeons and Dragons adventure that's essentially Mike's adventure from the end of season one where they're uh, hunting the Thessal Hydra, I believe, and uh, they created this tie-in game 
from the perspective that this was the game Mike wrote to help process the trauma of what happened to him. Uh, that every single adventure, that every twist, every turn, every dungeon, every dragon, every gorgon, every goblin was going to represent him overcoming uh, some of the pain that had been inflicted on him. And all of the boys were going to have an opportunity to work together to overcome these obstacles. And there are studies out there that say that role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons can have tremendous therapeutic effect, especially on young people, but on adults as well. They can help you build social skills and gain confidence in areas that you don't uh, have confidence in. They can help you strengthen parts of yourself that you don't see as part of you through building a character. You can learn creative problem solving. You can learn teamwork to work together. There is so much that you can learn from stepping into a role and fighting a monster, taking your internal fears that feel impossible to describe, that feel impossible to share with anyone, and put them in a monster and fight it and kill it and make it go away. You know, that's awesome that you said that. I grew up as a kid in the you know, 80s, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons right along the time that there was the Satanic Panic. Right. Which was a movement in America to get Dungeons and Dragons banned because they believed that it was a Satanic occult ritual and not just a fun board game. Right. And um, one, Dungeons and Dragons has always been so fundamentally misunderstood by the public. Finally, we're seeing in this current era that there isn't as much stigma around it as there used to be. Um, Because it used to be, even if you didn't think it was occult Satan worshiping. Then you thought it was, it was nerdy. It was just like. Yeah. Something that nerds do. Social outcasts. Yeah. Something that people who suck do that you don't want to associate with. So untrue. So fundamentally untrue. And I learned a few key amazing things from Dungeons and Dragons, just as we see these characters in Stranger Things learn. One, it was my first introduction to moral philosophy and that you can have a moral outlook that can shape the way you look at the world, which can also shape the way that you behave. It does so in Dungeons and Dragons through character alignment or their moral, yeah. uh, their their ability to how moral or not moral or in between they will be in any given situation. You are totally lawful good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a paladin. Yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In real life, I want to be anyway. I don't know if I am. Yeah. I try to be, but um, I want to be lawful good. But in um, in other just amazing things. So I I've told you podcast listeners before, if you're new here, I'm dyslexic. Dungeons right. and Dragons was a huge confidence booster in my reading comprehension skills. It got me reading lots of books. It got me writing and writing constantly and writing adventures and characters and character backstory. So it really helped me sharpen academic skills that I just flat out wasn't able to do in the conventional educational structure, or at least wasn't able to do as well as my other kids. Um, And it also gave me a passionate group of friends and that group of friends we would we would fight, we would argue, we would beat each other up. But at the end of the day, just as in Stranger Things, we were an adventuring party and we stuck together. 
And I guarantee, you know, if you called those kids up on the walkie-talkie and said, there is a monster, we need to go fight it, they would be at your side with their wrist rockets right away, right? Absolutely. They'd do anything for you. Absolutely. There's still a core group of my friends that Dungeons & Dragons was a staple that uh, we still bond over. So that is 100% true. It also helps you lead. It can take a shy, nerdy kid who is not necessarily the most confident and make them the master of a world in which I can then lead my peers in a game and have the, my f- peers have a great time. It helped me become a leader and help me see the world as someone that can lead my peers. And so I say all this in our conversation of monsters, a little bit off topic here is that the creation of storytelling and interactive storytelling is and can be a powerful and positive force in the world. Dungeons and Dragons and Stranger Things are one example of that. We are all going to invariably confront some form of a monster, whether that monster is purely in our anxieties and imagination, or whether that monster is something that's more external, like a force in the world that's not doing good that you want to do good. And when we confront these monsters, the seeds of how we overcome them are planted very early on. Yeah, yeah. And not to say that anyone is doomed or trapped into a particular way, but these seeds are planted very early on and it behooves us to try to be as courageous and brave and as connected and needing support as we need all at the same time. Yeah. And open. Um, What you just said about those seeds being planted young, I think is very true. It's, as as early as we start to externalize monsters, we can start learning the tools to cope with them, right? But the other thing that I think Stranger Things does so, so well uh, in this conversation around trauma and childhood trauma especially is as we see these kids dealing with, uh, with flashbacks, with uh, panic, with uh, physical reactions of fear, or in Eleven's case, self-blame, and these, you know, just awful symptoms of post-traumatic stress, we also see the adults on a journey, uh, especially Joyce Hopper and to, uh, you know, a certain level, Bob Newby, uh, played by the wonderful Sean Astin in season two. Uh, we see adults who may take some time to get there, but by the end of their character arcs are ready to meet these kids where they're at and say, oh, you saw a monster under your bed? I believe you. Let's figure out how to fight the monster together. And while, you know, if you're raising kids, you maybe don't want to say, yes, of course, there's a monster under your bed. There is strength, I think, in meeting uh, people who are going through uh, emotional difficulty where they are at, saying, oh, this is how you feel. Tell me more about that and let's fix it together. Not saying, stop feeling that way. It's not okay to feel that way or you have to get over it or... Uh, it's just uh, something that's in your mind. Meet them where they're at and be ready to go on an adventure with them toward recovery. I think watching the adults go through that journey is really powerful um, and really moving. So I, I appreciate Stranger Things uh, letting the adults take on the monsters alongside the kids. Absolutely. I totally agree. Yeah. In particular, season one has three layers of, of age in which the story is told. Right. So we have the kids, we have the teenagers, and we have the adults. And they're largely all grouped together. 
and we see how all three of them are dealing with the problems and the problem of Will disappearing, the problem of the Demi-Gorgon being there, and that all three deal with it very differently. But ultimately, they all have to come to the kids in order to defeat it. Yeah, They all have to come. It is the kids who fundamentally understand the problem the best. It's the kids who fundamentally know the solution. And in that, there is a kernel of wisdom that we can take that sometimes the wisdom of a child is really precious because children are fucking precious. Yeah, they are. Like, you know, that's the most precious thing you have in a society is your youth. And, you know, just ignoring them and you know, thinking that they're not there and not really caring about them and not really seeing who they truly are. Like Mr. Wheeler, come on. Well, even Joyce in season one, like jokes around how, you know, she and her and Will's father thought that he might be gay because he liked to draw pictures. Right. You know, that is very different from Joyce in season two. Yeah. yeah she's, she's learned to see on a who, yeah, like see who her, her son is. And the fact that he draws pictures is one of the things that saves Hopper's life in one of the early episodes. Yeah. Cause he draws a map of the town in his now memories. Yeah. So she's encouraging these things. And though I think Joyce is always a good mother. I'm not trying to criticize her, but it's to emphasize her journey to being able to see her children as they are. And I mean, Mike's parents in particular, his dad is just like, oh, I've got kids. I guess I should try to be a father. Eh. Like, he doesn't really give a shit about his yeah. family. No. There's that scene in season two where Dustin's just like, I'm looking for, for Mike. Have you seen him? No. What about our, Nancy? Our kids don't live here anymore, no. didn't you hear? And, and Dustin's like, son of a bitch. You're no help to me. You know, it's like, it's just such a great moment. It's just yeah. like, what a, like, the, he, this is a world in which there are monsters that are attacking your children and you don't even know where they fucking are. Yeah. Like, and you know that monsters were attacking your children last year. That's latchkey kids for you. My God, he is such a like, and, but I, I say that in the eighties, that was like not uncommon Yeah, for you and your, your friends to just go do things. And your parents just having no fucking clue where you are or what you were doing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was a nineties kid. So I was on the very tail end of that. Like, as I became a teenager, suddenly, if my parents didn't know where I was for 10 minutes, like they would call the cops. Right. But, but yeah, right. that was a wild time. Different wild world, time man. To be alive. Different world. You know, one just final concluding thought from me is that the monsters in Stranger Things, like the monsters in our own world, can be defeated, but you can't do it alone. It takes an adventure party. And you should never feel like you're alone and that you can only do it alone. And, uh, there's some monstrous things happening right now in this world all over it. And whether you're more a Lucas, Dustin, Mike, or Will, whether you want to attack it with a slingshot, stab it like a paladin, or maybe potentially name it something cute and try to train it to be good. Like, like a true bard. <laughs> like a true bard or be sensitive and caring and be able to have true sight like Will. Find your way to confront it and find your way to overcome it. And just know the midnight myth is standing right fucking next to you. Yeah. All over here with my chaotic neutral. Awesome. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. <laughs>